0: We've been in the book of Ephesians, uh, Made New to Live New. Ephesians is a book that's written in two parts. Uh, The first part is kind of what God has done, and that's the part we're in right now. The second part is um, in how we should live uh, based on that. And so made new, God's made us new, and we've talked about how God gives us life. And then the question is, then how should we live? Um, We live new uh, based on the life that God's given us. Now, uh, we're not quite into the how we should live part of the book just yet, but we're going to get a sneak preview today. Uh, we're going to get a question and a, and a provisional answer at 30,000 feet of what our lives are going to look like together. And so I just wanted to just review, kind of just a big picture of where we are in Ephesians and to kind of show you um, in the text and, and, and in what we've done for the last several months to kind of see how we're going to get put into answering this question. And so we started out in Ephesians with the big truth, the big story of the world. This is how Paul starts the book, where he has three big truths that kind of shape the way we see the world, the way our lives are structured, the real true story of how things are. The Father, God, has chosen us in Jesus the King. He chose every person here to be his, and he did it through the life and death Of Jesus the king. The father delivered us from bondage. Through Jesus the king. We were stuck. Trapped. Enslaved. By sin. And God set us free. And he did it through the cross. Of Jesus the king. And last God has secured us. For the future. His promised land. uh, We refer to the promised land of Israel. As kind of the promise for them. But for us it's the ages to come. The kingdom of God. What we sometimes call heaven. And he secured us for that. We know it's ours because we've got his spirit. His spirit marks us out and secures us. And that spirit is Jesus' spirit. Well, that's the story of the big world, uh, the big truth. That's the whole story of the world. And it, it's to us personally because we, we've learned over the last month or so, we were spiritually dead. Uh, we called ourselves the walking dead and the walking dead are not fit. For the life of the ages to come, the kingdom of God, heaven. The, the walking dead don't belong there, but they belong in a much worse place. And then, by grace alone, through faith alone, God did the impossible. He allowed us as a people to share in Christ's death, share in his resurrection, participate in his glorification. He made us spiritually alive so that we are ready for that kingdom of God, these ages to come, when life will be perfectly ordered according to God's good pleasure and good will. Now we are alive and we're found in a new community. And that means we have to learn to live together, which is no fun. I had a roommate once. His uh, name was, um, was Daryl. And Daryl uh, was, he was a former professional skateboarder and a very odd person, as I assume you have to be if you're going to dr- uh, jump off of semi-trucks on a skateboard and, and expect your knees to survive. You must be a little strange. And so Daryl was. And Daryl, I found, when I was living with him, was the kind of person who had a set of rules. And if you wanted to live with Daryl, you needed to learn these rules, which he never told you, and you needed to abide by them. And if you didn't, then he would make your life miserable. Uh, so there was uh, a number of times where I... Um, I'm kind of a loosey-goosey sort of fellow, and I just kind of go along to uh, to get along. And one of the things that I did at the time is I was sleeping on a bare mattress um, because I couldn't be bothered to do laundry or to get a bed frame. And so in my room, I had this, this bare mattress, and the next to the bare mattress were like um, a bunch of books on the floor because I was a student at the time. And um, there was, you know, some rotting food in the corner, and I, you move it to the corner so it doesn't smell too bad. Um, where you're sleeping. That's kind of my, my method. It's changed a little bit. Um, <laughs> but I, I remember, I remember, um, Daryl had stopped speaking to me. And I noticed that something was wrong. And, and I was like, finally I, I, tried to confront him, like, Daryl, what's going on? And he just looked at me and he's, and then he walked away. Daryl was not, not real good at confrontation. Um, and, and over time, I realized that at the time, Daryl was uh, trying to get girls to come to our uh, apartment to spend time with them. Um, not in a bad way, not in a sinful way, but just to spend time with them. And he was afraid to do it because of the smell coming out of my room. <laughs> and so he was really upset with me. Um, and so my buddy Mike was like, well, you know, man, maybe you should just kind of clean your room, sort of abide by his rules. And I was like, huh, okay. And so I did that, and suddenly we were best pals again. It was amazing. And so what I learned is, instead of me being me, what I had to do was kind of live by his rules. Um, and, and he had his way of doing things, and as long as I lived that way, we were going to get along great. Um, this is actually uh, what um, you might call a salad bowl. Right? A salad bowl type of culture. Where um, you've got, you know, in a salad, you've got like lettuce and, and gorgonzola and pear. Well, I, I, I eat classy salads. Your salads might be a little different, but kale uh you know pineapple whatever it is and and you it all exists together but but the kale stays kale the tomatoes stay tomatoes the gorgonzola stays gorgonzola nothing it's, it's mixed but it stays the same stays itself and what i found is that i couldn't be a tomato in, in Daryl's salad i had to be a piece of kale and so i just had to kind of live the way he lived and that that was how we worked we were together but separate then um, uh, at a certain point in my life i got married and um I mean, a great choice on my part. And, but So the thing is, though, you get into a marriage, and maybe if, you, if you're married, then you know this, and, and if you're not, you can probably imagine. Um, when you get into a marriage, you start to have to um, you know, live together. And, and it's interesting, different people come from different places, and they have different ways of doing things, right? And one of the big ones that you learn very quickly is the way you do holidays, okay? Um, I come from a family in which we don't even celebrate holidays on the day that they actually take place. True. So when I was growing up, most of the time on December 25th, we would be driving on the road because no one else was on the road because everyone was with their family celebrating Christmas. And we were like, ha ha ha, suckers, we missed the traffic. And that's how we operated. Um... I didn't have birthdays. And if I did, it was never on my actual birthday, April 20th, because that was five days after April 15th, which is tax day, and my mom's an accountant. And so she didn't have time to prepare birthday parties for me. And I was cool with that. As long as I, I figure, as long as I get the presents, what, who cares what day it is? Right? The Egertson family is different. <laughs> Much different. Uh, in the Egertson family, there is something really special about December 25th. And there's something really special about the way you do things together as a family. And what I found is, you know, I I had to adapt, but she also found that she had to adapt. And we had to mix the way we do things. And so sometimes, sometimes when we have a, a holiday, you know, we do it on a different time or day. Uh, but 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 at the same time, I've learned her traditions and I and we try to to, to mix them and marry them and, and so they kinda of, kind of melt together. It's like you have a melting pot. Um, my wife likes the melting pot. You go uh, to the melting pot and and you jump in four different types of cheese and then the cheese gets really hot and then it becomes a new cheese. A four-cheese blend. (laughs) Whereas before it was yellow and white, now it's somewhere in between. Orange. I mean, incredible. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, melted together and changed. Is the church a salad bowl or a a melting pot? When we come to the church, do we become like everybody who's there already? Or, does everybody get together and begin changing together? Is the church a salad bowl or a melting pot? Keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to go through the text today and we're going to try and bring it out, make it alive, get deep into it, and then ultimately answer that question. If you wouldn't mind standing, let's read the text together. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that back then you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, had been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, who has made both into one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new person, one new man from the two, thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. You may be seated. As we go through, through the text, I'm going to try and get like a, a fresh kind of reading, a fresh translation. Um, and, and, and as we do, we're going to pull out three major theological claims that Paul's making. And when we put these theological claims together, I submit to you, I suggest to you, we're going to be able to pull out the answer to that question, salad bowl or melting pot, melting pot. So let's look at that first section together again. Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the, the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Very confusing language. Um, especially if you don't know what uncircumcision and circumcision is. Well, let me break it down for you this way. This uh, right here called uncircumcised, this was actually an ancient racial slur. To bring it to um, our context, it was very much like someone using, uh the Jews in this case, using a slur, a racial slur, to describe everyone who wasn't them. And the racial slur they used was uncircumcised. So they would, they would, when they were hanging out together just themselves, and they were kind of looking over their shoulders in their group, and they knew that no other Gentiles, no Gentiles were around, the Jews would be like, those, those dirty uncircumcised. And that would be like a joke amongst them, like, oh, they're no good. It was a pejorative. And, and so I've, I've altered, made in the flesh by hands, uh, to physically circumcised. So there's these people who were physically circumcised, who used uncircumcised, and I'm assuming you know what circumcision is. If not, it involves uh, some mutilation. Um usually happens when a, ba- a, a male baby is very young. Um, and then once that, when they, they had that, and they would, they would look at those who didn't have that, and they would kind of... Um, have a, have a slur. And and it works like this. It's because, it's because circumcision, this change, um, was meant to signify a spiritual reality. What we call the circumcision of the heart. I look at this from Deuteronomy um, 30. It says, And Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. The idea, idea being that what happened to a male baby in the flesh, this kind of um, unhooding, this uh, this sort of You've been subjected to something above you. That was going to happen to the heart. So that what happened here physically was a symbol of what was happening spiritually about our relationship to God. So circumcision became a symbol for right with God. And so the Jews, because they were circumcised, looked at everybody who wasn't circumcised and assumed that they were not right with God. And they looked down on them. And this made Gentiles mad. As anything would make you mad when one group says there's something special about us that you don't have, and I look down on you for it. Moving on briefly in the text. That at that time you were without Christ. You, the Gentiles, without, without Christ. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of, of promise. All I've uh, altered there is just to remind God's covenants of promise. See, the Jews, they kind of look down on the Gentiles, but they're not entirely wrong. There is something that separates Jews and Gentiles, and it does give them some kind of advantage. And that is that they have God's covenants of promise. God, throughout history, have, has found all these individual Jewish people, Hebrew people, Abraham and Moses and Noah, and made promises to them that would, would last throughout the generations. And because the Jews had their scriptures and they knew these stories and they knew who they knew a little bit about who God was, the, the Gentiles didn't. The Gentiles didn't have access to that. And so there was something special about this group, uh, but maybe not quite as special as they thought. Paul ends, having no hope, and without God in the world, and just a, in this world, therefore, you were hopeless atheists. That's literally the word Paul uses, the word we get, our word atheist, atheist. He calls the Gentiles atheists. That's a little strange. If you think about the ancient world, you know that um, people in the ancient world had lots of gods, right? There was Zeus and Hera, and some people thought uh, the emperor was a god. Uh, There were lots and lots of gods. How is it that Paul can call these Gentiles atheists? Well, the Gentiles had a lot of gods, but they didn't believe in the right one. And that matters. Because Yahweh God's character and nature is fundamentally different than the gods of the ancient world. The gods of the ancient world were vindictive, and they were fickle. They were angry. Sometimes they were real happy. They would find one person and be real nice to them and then turn on them. The gods of the ancient world were honestly a lot like us. But because the Jewish people had the scriptures and the traditions, they knew that Yahweh God was different. That Yahweh God never gave up. That Yahweh God kept his word. That Yahweh God would never change and never stop loving you. No matter how bad you got. Let's read uh, this text one more time, a little in, in this kind of fresh uh, translation. Remember, you used to be Gentiles by physical descent. You were called uncircumcised by Jews who had been physically circumcised. At that time, you did not have Christ. You were aliens rather than citizens of Israel and strangers from God's covenants of promise. In this world, therefore, you were hopeless, atheists, Paul's first theological claim. This is in your note sheet. The Jews were close to God because of the law and the prophets. The Gentiles were atheists. The Jews, because they had the law and the prophets, they knew something about who God was. They were closer to him. The Gentiles, because they didn't, they were hopeless. They were atheists. They didn't believe in God. Now imagine, think about this. These are two groups. One group has special access to who God is and what God's like. This other group is completely off, far away. Just and now and now we're gonna find out they're gonna start living together. This is gonna be bad. So remember, salad bowl or melting pot, when they start living together, is it is it Tom and Daryl or Tom and Aaron? Which is it gonna be? The next, the next section. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Uh, the only thing I, I just want to emphasize there is, is, is look, you, you've been brought here. You're no longer strangers, because Jesus Christ and his cross, his blood, has done something fantastic the, the, the Gentiles didn't know anything about God. They were atheists. And then they heard about Jesus. They heard that he died for them. He was humiliated, shamed for them, put on a cross for them. And suddenly, as soon as they believed that, they knew something critical and fundamental and absolutely novel and unbelievably true about God. Before, they had no idea who Yahweh God was. And as soon as they saw the cross, they had the perfect picture of that God. Far off, atheists now brought near because they see the cross. The cross is like a tutor for the Gentiles, and it tells them who God is. For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Both Jews and Gentiles. This is a little weird, that middle wall of separation. I've, I've uh, altered it. The Greek is very strange, um, and it's ambiguous. But following Paul's logic, I think this is probably the best way um, to, to, to hear it. And, and I'm going to show you why. So the fence of hatred that divided us. Uh, right next, I've got a picture of the temple where the Jews used to worship. Um, and so there's a beautiful gate, right? And you walk in the beautiful gate, and the way the temple is set up, this is Herod's temple, the second temple. Um, there's a court, and they call it the court of the Gentiles. It's where the Gentiles go, and then you look, and there's the inner courts. So there's the courts. So there's the space for the Gentiles, where they can come if they're interested in Yahweh God, if they want to know about Yahweh God, they can come there. They can hear, they can worship. But there's special places they don't have access to, and those special places are the inner courts. Well, check this out. So in in uh, in in, in uh, 1871, we uh, we found this this uh, stone. There was a, a an excavation in Jerusalem. Um, it's it's in Greek, and it was it's from the the, the second temple. Um. And it was a sign separating that court of the Gentiles and the inner courts where the, the Jewish people were, were allowed to go and worship. And, and this sign, um, it, check out what it says. It says, No one of another race is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will, there should be two L's, have only himself to thank for the death that follows. <laughs> So that's pretty racist. <laughs> I mean, that's how we would say it, right? I mean, isn't that really? So the, the, So you're a Gentile, and you're like, oh, I love worshiping Yahweh God, and you're like, maybe I can go in in this store, and there's a guy who's like, no, that's a bad idea. You, we have some rules here. Um, and we want our apartment to look really nice. And we want it to be the kind of place that ladies feel comfortable coming over and sitting and talking with us. And so you're gonna need to kind of abide by our rules. This temple is a salad bowl. Let's hear this text again. Uh, he, uh, hearing that, um, that fence uh, in the background. Um, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. You're no longer strangers because of the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made Jews and Gentiles one people. In his body he tore down. The fence of hatred that divided us. This is the second thing on your note sheet, the second theological claim Paul is making. He says, the cross gives divine life to all. He's creating a new human race out of the two. And those barriers, they're gone. That that fence that says, Oh no, you can't worship here. You don't belong here. That's gone. So in the back of our heads, we're asking ourselves, is the church going to be a salad bowl or a melting pot? Let's look at the the third section of the text, the third theological claim Paul makes. In the New King James, um, it says, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Very, very uh, long. It's trying to keep the sense of a long Greek sentence. But um, there's a problem there. You'll notice uh, the first thing about it is that I've um, eliminated... Um, in his flesh the enmity that is. That is right there the New King James had to add it because they were really confused about what to do with this with this um this clause. And you'll notice that, that before in, in the last section, um I actually added that in his flesh the enmity, in his body the hatred. In his body, he tore down the fence of hatred that divided us. Um, grammatically, it could go either way, uh, but I think given the context, um, Paul's really trying to say that, that there was this fence in between us and, and, and Christ, because of the way he died for us, he tore it down. So the hatred goes with it. Um, and, and so I've I, I read it this way. He dispensed with Torah, with its commands and decrees, and the point of all of this was to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. He dispensed with the law, the Torah, with its detailed rules, its commands and decrees. The way that's done in Greek is it's like, it's like, it's kind of a conjunct, like run-on, like it was so detailed and rule-oriented and this, and you had to do that. It was so stri- strict. The point that Paul's making is, so... The, Gentile, the Jews want to get to God and they have their way of doing it through Torah and through um, the rules and the ordinances. The Gentiles, they have their way of God, which usually involves some horrible things, um, sacrifices of very strange kinds and very weird um, worship practices. They both were trying to get to God. A- a- and then in Christ, God set aside the, the way that the Jews were doing it with their rules and their details and their laws and their ordinances. He just he said, let's not do it that way. And with the Gentiles, he was like, ugh, definitely not what you're doing. Instead, instead, we're going to have both of you come to God through the cross of Christ. Jesus is going to do it all for you. Why does God do this? Why does God set aside Torah, the law, and its details and its commands? It's obvious why he's going to set aside what the, 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 the pagans did. But why set aside Torah? Well, one, it didn't work. The people were trying to live up to the rules, and they were failing And what was even worse is it ended up causing the Jews and the Gentiles to hate each other. Because the Jews were working working so hard on getting it just right that anyone they saw who wasn't doing it right, they said, you're, ugh, get away from me, I can't be with you. You either do it my way or you go pound sands. And so there's friction in between the two. So not only does it fail when the Jews try to live up to these rules and regulations, but it also has the double added terrible Failure that it takes the people of the world whom God wants together and makes them apart. God did this, this is verse 16, that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body, Christ's body, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And I've just uh, changed the enmity just because it's a strange word to, to our mutual hatred. Uh, It's interesting, in Greek literature, you have all these things, all these uh, quotes and, and, and examples of Gentiles hating the Jews because the Jews were weird, and they looked down on them, and they were not very inclusive. Let's hear the whole thing afresh. Verses 13 to 16. Uh, now with some of this, this background in our minds. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. You're no longer strangers because of the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made Jews and Gentiles one people. In his body he tore down the fence of hatred that divided us. He dispensed with Torah and its commands and decrees. And the point of all of this was to create in himself one new man, one new person from the two and make peace between them. He reconciled us both to God, not through the details of Torah and not through the weird pagan practices, but in Christ, in one body through the cross, and thereby put to death our mutual hatred. The third theological claim in your note sheets, in the cross, God alters the importance of the law. By saving everyone the same way. God alters the importance of the law by saving everyone the same way. The Torah, the law, the Old Testament is still important. It still gives us a great, perfect picture of who God is. It still tells us all about his nature. It still tells us all of what he's done. But it's not the method by which we get saved. And it should never be a cause for division. Which brings us to our question. The new humanity. Salad bowl or melting pot? When I was uh, living in Japan, uh, my best friend was Mr. Machida, Machida Machida-san. When we first met um, Mr. Machida, Machida Machida-san, my friend Ben, who lived near me uh, and also knew um, Mr. Machida, called him Machida Pet. Because uh, what we found was that uh, Mr. Machida... I guess I think part of it is because it sounds a little bit like Chia Pet, but either here or there. We found that Mr. Machida would do almost anything to make us happy. Um, whatever whatever was going on in our lives, Mr. Machida, he'd find out about it because people in Japan talk behind your back. <laughs> uh, and so so any, anything we were doing was public knowledge. And then he would hear about it, and if he saw something wrong, or he felt like we were out of control, or we weren't able to acquire what we needed or whatever, he would literally just show up on your doorstep with <laughs> like a basket. So he'd be like, oh, I heard you are out of milk. You're like... Pfft. Okay. And he like, here's here's some milk. Are you okay? I remember one time um I uh I was uh I he, he came to my door and he had like, like this uh, community truck and he was like, Um yeah, I heard that uh that you haven't taken out your trash. And I was like, What? He, so he's like, No no, just check it out. So so we went behind um the house and, and so I used to live in this this amazing uh house. They're very generous people, the Japanese. And I um behind the house was like a mountain of trash bags. Where, what I'd been doing is I'd been, like, just throwing it out. And I think I'd probably waited maybe all winter. Um, and so it was, it was frozen and rotten. Um, and maybe my, one of my rice farmer na- neighbors uh, caught the smell. And, well, at any anyway, rate, somehow Mr. Machita had found out about this. And, uh, and so he, he brought a truck, and he loaded up my trash. <laughs> it, like, filled up the truck. He took me to the dump. We got rid of it. Um, it was interesting, though, the way we communicated we had a great communication system. I could understand everything that he wanted, and, and he could understand everything I wanted. We became uh, really really close friends over the, the couple of years I was there. Um, and the reason we were able to do that is because we spoke Japanglish. Um, it's a, it's a, a, an incredible language um, <laughs> filled with nuance. Um, and it's, it was a private language too. No one else understood it. Uh, I got to know him so well that I knew which words in uh, English that he knew, and um, which words he didn't. And he knew me so well that he knew all the words in English or in Japanese that I didn't know. Um, and he had a little machine that would translate them into English. And so when we would talk, it would be like this weird garbled mangling of Japanese and English. And it was, it was really fast. We, we were at, at a point where it was like, I mean, it, it's hard to even get back to it, but it was like, and people around us would be like, what's going on? Um. It was, like, it was like, I took a little bit of, you know, Machida-san's uh, culture, language, and, and, and he took a, a little bit of mine, and we just smashed them together. And it was so easy that as soon as he got to the door, it only took about two seconds before I realized someone had ratted on me, and we needed to get the garbage taken out. It made for an incredible relationship, an incredible working relationship. It wasn't a total Japanese relationship, as most of my uh, relationships in Japan were. And it obviously wasn't entirely American or Western. In fact, everything about it was this bizarre blend. Everything about it was a, a little bit of America and our emotive way of doing things. And everything about it was a little bit of Japan with this kind of staid, um, reserved it was fascinating when uh, the day I left. I'll never forget this. I, <laughs> I'll never forget. Uh, he he walked m- me and my parents uh, to the train station, and in his um, halting English, he said, Tomu-san, Mister Tom, you are my true friend," and he began to cry. I'll never forget that because I had never seen a Japanese man cry because Japanese men don't cry. They only cry when they're speaking Japanglish. True fact. And so we ask ourselves, are we a melting pot, or are we a salad? You see, what Paul said, what Paul said happened to the Jews, is that, is that the way the Torah and the law and the ordinances worked, it changed. It wasn't Gone completely. You didn't, you're not a Jewish Christian, and you come into the church, and you don't. You just ignore the Old Testament. That doesn't happen. No, uh, the, the, you need to have the, the covenants of promise. You need to know the stories and the truths because that's how you're going to remember who God is and what He's like. So you you have it's there, but it's also not governing every aspect of your life. It's not. You don't go and and you don't. Uh, Do every single thing according to the law. We've dispensed with that. It's this very strange, it's there, but it's not essential. It's part of your life and your tradition, but it doesn't govern every aspect of your actions. And so you've got some freedom in the way that you relate to people. Paul's theology suggests that the church is going to function like a melting pot. The Gentiles aren't going to come in and get circumcised and give up bacon. At the same time, our Jewish friends... Well, I guess they can't get uncircumcised. <laughs> and and, the, and some of them might not give up bacon, or they might, depending on the situation, they that we're going to work it out. A little bit of this, and a little bit of that. Because this is a new race, a new humanity, a new people. And with this new race, and this new humanity, and this new people, we have some freedom. And the way we work together is going to be based on grace. Christian culture is always a culture of grace. You too has that lyric about I believe in the kingdom come when all the colors will bleed into one. Grace is the way that happens. First, the gracious way that Christ invites us into the new humanity by faith alone. And then the grace we show each other as we are willing to change and alter and adapt so that we can start speaking not just English, not just Japanese, but Japanglish. And so that when a person comes into this community and starts spending time with us, that person doesn't become like us, although they will. And we don't entirely become like them. We become a new humanity together. That suggests, of course, that we need to think clearly about ways in which we are being, as a community, a salad bowl and demanding that every person look just like us with our rules so that we stay separate and never adapt to each other. We've got to think about what are our sacred cows, what are the things that really, if you're honest about it, aren't matters of life and death, aren't matters of salvation, aren't matters of you know the truth, but instead are matters of, well, that's just kind of how we do things. And what kinds of things like that need to adapt and change so that we can welcome new people in. We can start speaking Japanglish with them. And likewise, uh, we can't just come into the community and be like, make space for me, change everything. No. It's not how family works. Instead, there's a gracious interplay. This way and that way, Together. Friends, according to Paul, there are no Americans or Aztecs or Jews or Gentiles. There are Christians, a new race, a new humanity in the melting pot. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we will govern our love for each other, according to your grace. That we will not demand this and be like that, but instead we'll work together in love graciously to be a new people before you. God, reveal to us ways that we are a salad bowl reveal to us ways in which we are demanding that everyone else play by our rules and do faith our way and give us the courage and the strength to break those things down, to be open to new expressions, new possibilities. And God, bring new people in, people who want to be a part of this community, who want to make those negotiations with us, who want to become our friends and our family, our brothers and sisters. To practice faith before you as a new people. Gathered in grace. Made new through faith. Now and until you come again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.